If you look at the Gospels, there are many times when it appears that people interrupt Jesus. Jesus was on his way to someone's house to raise a child from the dead. And the people are pressing around him and all of a sudden he feels virtue come out of him and he says, who touched me? And Peter leans over to him and he says, Master, all these people are pressing around you. Why would you say who touched me? But Jesus knew because he was God in the flesh. So even if 60 people were touching him, only one of them drew power from him, and that was the woman with the issue of blood, who had had an issue of blood 12 years. And for the first time, she was able to stand up straight. And she acknowledged that she had touched him And he says, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Do you think in Jesus' mind that that was an interruption? No. Jesus knew that lady would be there. I've seen many times this meme going around Facebook. If you're going to be hanging on by a thread, make sure that thread is the hem of Jesus' garment. So we're going to begin today in Acts 19, verse 35. And we're, we're making good progress uh, through this book. I have really enjoyed uh, this study. Um, Dr. Luke is a very detailed writer. And as a writer myself, I appreciate uh, details. And so i just really been blessed by our study. And I hope that you have been as well. Uh, If you recall, um, where we left things uh, last time, there was a riot ensuing um, because of Paul uh, preaching the gospel, the purchase of idols related to the worship of Diana had gone down, So the business of the people of that place was being negatively affected. And then, of course, their religion was being affected. So it caused them to go into a frenzy. And um, just to go back to verse 34, it said, But then when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, they cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So they did this for a two-hour period of time. These were a frenzied people. And of course, here in our country, um, at different times in the last few years, we've seen what riots can do. Um, In the summer of 2020, there were multiple uh, riots in different towns. Even in Grand Rapids, we had a riot of sorts where there was damage to many buildings in our downtown. Um, anger is something that can control us and, and make us do some really awful things. That's why um, the proverb says, a harsh word stirs up anger, but a soft answer turns away wrath. 
and how important that principle is for us. So let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll dig into our study today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come before you and be under the sound of your word. Lord, we pray that we would be changed people from being here and that you would guide and direct and bless us as we seek to honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today's message is called The Aftermath of the Riot. And I think that a lot of times what happens in the book of Acts is God does something miraculous. And then there's a fallout from it. Persecution from the, the, the forces without. And then there's an aftermath. And where we've arrived at another aftermath. This being the aftermath of the riot. And my first point is you'll see the town clerk brings calm. The town clerk brings calm. So we're going to read, first of all, Acts 19, 35 to 41. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For ye ye have brought hither these men who are neither robbers of churches nor blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them impede one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called into question for this day's uproar, there being no cause, whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. So basically we see this town clerk, not out of any devotion to the Apostle Paul, but just to the devotion of law and order, who says there's a legal recourse to do this. And it doesn't involve rioting, and it doesn't involve anger, and it doesn't involve violence. It involves going to the law. So if you really think that this is a problem, you should go to the law. You should use the legal recourse that we have. And I am very grateful to live in America where when there is uh, wrong done against us, we have legal recourse um, to fight for our rights. Um, This past summer, uh, the Supreme Court handed down a ruling that Coach Joe Kennedy had his constitutional rights infringed upon when he lost his job at a public high school for praying at the 50-yard line after a game. And so he is going back into coaching. I believe he's actually going back to the same school. Some would say um, that he should find somewhere else to work. He really wanted to go back to the same school um, so that he could continue to stand. And now he has the Supreme Court standing behind him. And what a wonderful thing it is that we have a country where we have that kind of um, recourse. 
But in this situation, this town clerk sees that everything is going into a frenzy. Nobody knows what they're doing. Um, you know, we have a classification of crime in America called a crime of passion. And basically what that means is that if it's determined to be a crime of passion, it means that it was an unintentional act because of the anger of the moment. Because when we are angry, we are not thinking straight. And perhaps that is why uh, the Proverbs also says a brother offended is harder to be one than a walled city. Because once you've been angry with someone, once you've said things you regret, just like the toothpaste tube on your counter at home, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can try, but you can't. Another example would be the fact that if I take a printer paper off my printer tray, it is pristine. There's no wrinkles in it. It's completely wrinkle-free. But if I squish it up with my hand, crumple it up, and then I try to straighten it out, Will it ever be as straight as it was before I crumbled it up? No, it won't. These are just two examples of how you can't take back the things you say and we have to be careful about what we say because of it. The Bible says no man can tame the tongue. That it's a powerful weapon. James says with the same tongue we bless God and with the same tongue we curse others. So this is a lesson to us to make sure that we are putting our tongue in subjection to the Lord. And it's, uh, and I just have some insights about this. It says, Paul and the Christians had not stolen from the temple, nor were they sacrilegious in any way. The verse tells us something about apostolic preaching. It was not preaching based on the negative. Paul preached Christ in a positive way and only pointed out the evils of idolatry to make a contrast. Paul opposed idolatry, reasoned against it, and endeavored to turn people from it. But his presentation was not harsh, critical, or reproachful. Paul did not entitle his first message in Ephesus, Seven Wrong Things About Artemis. No, he preached Christ, solemnly testifying to both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20.21 He encouraged men first to turn to God and then from idols. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Christians gain nothing by a negative approach with bitter and reviling words. We must preach Christ. When men meet him, they will turn from idols. And that's from Jack Arnold. And that's a good lesson for us because I know that we we tend as believers to have this passion to be known for things that we're against. Instead of simply letting people know that we are for the Lord Jesus Christ. And why are we for the Lord Jesus Because he's in a life-changing business. I was one way when I was a young boy. And now I'm completely different. 
And the only thing that made the difference was Jesus. We look by way of cross reverence at Acts 5:35 to 39, Acts 5:35 to 39. And said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Judas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain. And all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxi, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, but if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. So I believe this is Gamaliel speaking up in the council when the people want to harshly discipline Peter and John for speaking out for Jesus. And he's basically saying, if this Jesus is nothing, then this cause will end. No harm, no foul. But if this Jesus be a God, then you will end for standing against God. I bring your attention back to the book of Exodus in the first few chapters when the astrologers of Egypt are copying the plagues of Israel and it comes to their attention that eventually they can't do the plagues. The first couple, for whatever reason, through the evils of Satan or whatever, they seem to be able to duplicate them. But then they got to a point where they couldn't. And what did the astrologers say to Pharaoh? This is the finger of God. You can't stand against God no matter how hard you try, so please stop trying. Proverbs 16, 7. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. This town clerk was not speaking out in support of Paul. But he was basically making the point that Paul has been peaceful and you guys are going into a riotous fit and it's not doing anything positive. Do you ever think about the fact that Daniel served, I believe it was four Gentile kings, kings that knew nothing of the true God of Israel at least in the beginning of his service to them. And yet he had their respect without ever defiling himself or dishonoring God. That's convicting to me. Because in many ways today we are 
exiles living in Babylon. Because we are far away from the place where we honor biblical values in our country. And yet people, when things go wrong, when things are haywire, they scratch their head and they say, why are things haywire? And we blame each other instead of doing what the psalmist did when he looked up and said, I will look up into the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh even from the Lord who has made heaven and earth. Solomon said it this way, Remember thou thy creator in the days of thy youth. We need to encourage our young people, our youth, to remember their creator because that will inform the rest of their lives. It's a high calling for parents and for grandparents and for uncles and for aunts, but it's what we're called to. We must not fail. Our children's lives are at stake. I have never seen Jesus, but I have seen Dr. Shepard, was the remark of a poor American who had seen the Christ-like service of that great medical missionary to the Near East. This utterance expresses one great Christian truth. Christ continues to reveal God through the lives of his followers. A missionary in China once told of Jesus for the first time to a group of people in an inland town. When he finished, someone said, Oh yes, we know him. He used to live here. Somewhat surprised, the missionary said, No, he lived centuries ago in another land. The man still insisted that he had seen Jesus, saying, Not so. He lived in this village and we knew him. Whereupon the crowd conducted the missionary to the village cemetery and showed him the grave of a medical missionary who had lived, served, healed, and died in the community. Christ's spirit taketh breath again within the lives of holy men. Each changing age beholds afresh its word of God in human flesh. Paul said, you are my epistles known and read of all men. So now we come to Acts chapter 20. And we're going to read the first five verses, Acts 20, 1 to 5. And after the uproar was ceased... Paul called upon him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone over these parts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece and there abode about three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he proposed to return to Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Serpiter Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timotheus of Asia, and Tychicus, and Trifimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. So Paul brings this group of people with him. And I love the fact that Paul has accountability. I was reading about um, this situation, and it says... Paul's ministry of Macedonia was not one of evangelism, but edification. He went back to encourage the believers who were undoubtedly facing much persecution. He gave them much exhortation, for he knew how important it was for these Christians to know the truth, for the truth would set them free. Paul had a burden for follow-up. He did not win men to Christ to leave them alone. 
Even years later, he desired to go back and make sure that his converts were walking in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. These insights that I'm sharing today come from the website Precept Austin, just so you know about the source. And I just really like that, that Paul is about discipleship. So often our evangelism systems today are about going and sharing the word with very little discipleship going on. Don't get me wrong, the gospel should go forth and we cannot always follow up and disciple every single person with whom we share the gospel. But we must not forget discipleship as we go. Then I found this about why so many men had traveled with him. It says Paul probably insisted that these men go with him to Jerusalem in order that there would be no mishandling of the funds taken up in the Gentile churches for the needy saints of Jerusalem. Everything for Paul was to be done openly and honestly with the utmost integrity. The Greek text may help us here to see another reason these seven men were traveling with Paul. The word accompanies literally means to stick with. These were seven alert young men who hung around Paul and who Paul picked to travel with him so they could learn from him. Paul was discipling these men. Paul had a traveling seminary. He was giving them on-the-job training in the things of Christ. He was teaching them doctrine and showing them how to apply it by following his example. We could call them interns, for they were in training for the ministry. So Paul is bringing them for accountability, but he's also sharing the things of Christ with them. And I I love uh, the aspects of this story. I will mention here that although these men are mentioned because they are godly and they are following with Paul, I don't think any of these names are going to make it into um, regular circulation in the baby names of the 21st century. Um, I think that if I name my child Aristarchus, he would never forgive me. But I really appreciate that these names are listed. How wonderful it is that Paul was the kind of encouraging person that he would publicly list and thank those who encouraged him. And how wonderful that fellowship must have been. We are not intended to serve the Lord in a solitary manner. As a matter of fact, even the Lord Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, what did he do? He sent them out in six groups, two by two. Or even more. I think there was one point where he sent out 70 disciples. But he sent them out two by two because when one falls, the other one is there to take them up. As Ecclesiastes said, we need encouragement from one another. And I love the fact that he gave them much encouragement. Can we look at Colossians 1, 28 and 29? Colossians 1, 28 and 29. So Paul is trying to teach the true gospel, to teach them Christ, and that the power of the Holy Spirit is what works in him mightily to do it. We don't do the things of Christ in our own power. We have no power. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. 
2 Corinthians 11, 26 to 28. 2 Corinthians 11, 26 to 28. I have been often on my travel. I have been in danger from rivers and robbers, in danger from Jews and Gentiles, in danger from towns and desert, in dangers on the sea, in dangers among false brothers, in labors and hardships, in many speak with life, in hunger and spirit, starving many times, cold and ill fed so Paul is going through for the Corinthians what he has gone through for the gospel and I think it's really convicting to me because we tend to get irritated when we get inconvenienced by others If you look at the Gospels, there are many times when it appears that people interrupt Jesus. Jesus was on his way to someone's house to raise a child from the dead. And the people are pressing around him. And all of a sudden, he feels virtue come out of him. And he says, who touched me? And Peter leans over to him and he says, Master, all these people are pressing around you. Why would you say who touched me? But Jesus knew because he was God in the flesh. So even if 60 people were touching him, only one of them drew power from him. And that was the woman with the issue of blood who had had an issue of blood 12 years. And for the first time, she was able to stand up straight. And she acknowledged that she had touched him. And he says, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Do you think in Jesus' mind that that was an interruption? No. Jesus knew that lady would be there. I've seen many times this meme going around on Facebook. If you're going to be hanging on by a thread, make sure that thread is the hem of Jesus' garment. And there's a song that says, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. That is the God for whom we have to do. And I hope that that encourages you. That whatever you're going through, God has a plan. So we're moving on to Acts chapter 20, verses 6 to 11. Our last section for today. Paul preaches and heals at Troas. And as with Jesus in the Gospels, Paul and the others in Acts, when they do heal, I believe it is to teach a greater spiritual truth or to add credence to the truth of what has been preached. So let's look at Acts chapter 20, verses 6 to 11. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, 
Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat, a win- there sat in a window a certain man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he slunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, embracing him, said, Trouble not yourself, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread, and eaten, and talked a long while, even till the break of day, so he departed. And I'm just going to read verse 12 too. And they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. So, we have the situation where they sail um, from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. They go to Troas, which took them five days, and then they abode for a week. I want to point out that we have been switching back and forth from the third person to the first person. And we're back to the first person The word we is used. Why? Because Luke is saying, I was on this journey with Paul. So Luke is observing this. And this is an important thing as we go down the passage. Because then it talks about upon the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. Now we know that the reason they were coming together at night was because they had to work during the day. Why? Because... They were not in a Judeo-Christian culture where the weekend was created so that the Jews could have their Sabbath on Saturday so that we could have our Sabbath on Sunday. That's how we got our five-day work week and our two-day weekend in our modern calendar based on that. But they didn't have that. So they were still in the Jewish culture. Not only that, but it was pointed out to me in a message by... David Gesick, that often believers in Jesus would still go to the Jewish Jewish synagogue on Saturday, and then they would meet together in each other's homes on Sunday. So this is the the context around which they are meeting, and um, they've presumably worked all day on Sunday. Sunday was a work day in this culture, and so. Uh, we come to a man named Eutychus. Now, Eutychus is a common slave name. So it's possible that either he was a slave at that present moment, or he used to be a slave. But either way, he probably worked all day. He's very tired, and he makes the mistake. Or maybe he was being gracious. And there wasn't a lot of seats. Maybe he yielded them to others in the congregation, older or women and children, whatever the case may be. He's sitting in a third-story window. And it's open. And he falls asleep. So what happens next is that Paul was long preaching. And he falls out the window and falls to his death. 
And we know that he fell to his death because Luke, the physician, was there. And he says he fell out of the third loft and was taken up dead. Some people debate whether he was dead, but Luke never uses ambiguous language. In this whole book, Luke does not use ambiguous language. So if Luke says it happened, it happened. Says he was taken up dead. And so then Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him and said, trouble not yourselves for his life is in him. So God must have had a plan for Eutychus that involved him living a longer life. Now, I read one thing that seems to indicate that traditionally it was attempted to martyr him for the faith, but they were unsuccessful. So I don't know how long he lived or what the circumstances of his second death were, but I kind of have joked before about Lazarus when he was rose from the dead. I often wonder what it was like in paradise when he died as an older man. Did he just say, I'm back? I don't know. And I don't know if that was the case with Eutychus. But what we have here is the fact that Eutychus died. And then was brought back up to the room alive. And then he didn't leave right away. He didn't say, well, I better get to sleep because I died once. I don't want anything else bad to happen to me. It says that he broke bread and stayed with Paul and the rest of them until the break of day. And then Paul departed. And they brought the young men alive and were not a little comforted. I'm so glad that we serve a God that has the power over life and death. This past Monday night, during a football game between the the Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills, Delmar Hamlin, who happens to be a believer in the Lord Jesus, did a tackle, got up, took a couple steps, fell backward, collapsed. He had a cardiac arrest on the field. He was resuscitated, placed in an ambulance, had to be resuscitated again on the way to the hospital or when he arrived at the hospital and was on a ventilator in critical condition for a few days this week. Last report is he's home and he's talking and he's thankful for the prayers of God's people. We don't know what God's ultimate plan is for Delmore Hamlin. And we don't know how much time each of us has. But we know that God has our times in his hands. And do I, do I believe that 
he died there on that field? No, I do not. But I also believe that God allowed him to be resuscitated and has allowed him to have life and to recover from this awful thing that happened because he has a greater plan than any of us knows. And I know that everything that happens to us happens because it goes through the Father's hand. And just as Eutychus was restored to life from God's plan, because it wasn't the power of Paul. Remember with Epaphroditus, Paul wanted to heal Epaphroditus. He wanted Epaphroditus to be healed, but God didn't allow Paul to just walk in and heal Epaphroditus. Paul prayed for days and days on end and God chose to heal Epaphroditus, but it wasn't like Paul could just walk in, lay his hand on Epaphroditus and have him healed. He says Epaphroditus was nigh unto death and then God miraculously healed him. You think if Paul himself had the power to heal that Epaphroditus would have been nigh unto death for days? No. Because God's healing works in God's timing and for God's purposes. And I read in one commentary that what Paul was teaching them about the things of Christ was solidified by the fact that God raised Eutychus from the dead. And this little known slave who is just tired from the day is now known to history because he was there when the Apostle Paul was preaching my God. Did you realize as I close that none of us are little known to God? He knows the very hairs on our heads. If you haven't trusted him with your salvation today, I would urge you that today would be that day. We read that now is the day of salvation. And what a wonderful way to start out 2023 and with walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is yes and amen. We thank you for uh, this example of Eutychus. And we thank you uh, for uh, you restoring him to life. We thank you that you restored us to life. We were dead in trespasses and sin, and you restored us to life. We pray that this would be an example to us to stay awake and alert. We are to be sober and vigilant, for our adversary, the devil, wanders around seeking whom he may devour. So may that be said of us, that we are sober and vigilant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.